Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to be about your business. In these next few moments, Lord, as we look to your word, would you speak to us? God, I pray that you, your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word and that our hearts would be open and our minds and our hands open-handed to what it is that you would want to do in our life today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Advent is the season of preparation, and a few weeks ago I mentioned how I kind of grew up not really celebrating Advent, because that's not really the, the kind of church I grew up in, but uh, it's been a beautiful thing for my family. I told you, I, w- I believe my family is going to celebrate like the anticipation of Christmas like we never have before, and what I found is we have, but what I've also found is real life happens. So we have this book that we were reading together with our kids that may be a little above their heads. So when you have kids laying on the floor rolling around while Heather's reading, it was better than last year, but not quite like this great picture because reality is reality, but it's been an awesome thing. Well, there's one story. Listen, be here for Christmas Eve because my wife's going to read this story because I remember the, the, the night that we sat around as a family and my wife read this story and we just kind of looked at each other with tears in our eyes despite my kids rolling around on the floor. Just an absolute incredible part of our Christmas Eve service. I hope you're here. But it's been, it's, been, it's been great. And the readings, the kids lighting the candles, the candles being lit on the first attempt. Today was peace. If we define peace, if we ask people to define what does peace mean, what you get is going to get answers like it's the opposite of war. It's the, it's the freedom from hostilities. It's a, the negative space where there's not bad stuff happening. It's just kind of a passive definition of peace. And I think of all the things in the Christmas season that kind of like, kind of hit you in the feels, there's a story from 1914, you, many of you are familiar with this, it's the Christmas truce that happened uh, in the trenches in World War I. I have a quick video I want to show you to kind of illustrate this thing. It's a beautiful picture of peace. It's a beautiful picture of just the definition I gave, the opposite of war, the, the freedom from hostility. Would you just check this video out? It's a beautiful picture, is it not? I don't want to ruin it for you, but that was for a commercial for supermarkets in, uh, in England back in 2014. And despite the fact that it was originally a commercial, I still think it illustrates peace as we think of peace. Some people thought it was a beautiful tribute, to be honest. Some people thought it was dangerous and disrespectful. My thought is simply like, why do grocery store commercials have to be so emotional? Goodness gracious. <laughs> if you're not familiar with the Christmas truce of 1914, there was... Really, because it's a, it's a British supermarket chain, the English guy comes out first. But really, it was the Germans who came out first. They even put Christmas trees up on top of the trenches. There was a soccer game that, that's been documented that broke out, or football. There, were, there was a German barber who offered haircuts. I mean, there was an exchanging of gifts, and it was a beautiful picture. And the thing that we think, well, isn't this what Christmas is about? Isn't this why we celebrate Christmas? Isn't this peace on earth? But the problem with that is that except for a few limited fields where the ceasefire held almost New Year's Day, most fields saw the battle begin the very next day. The peace was just for a moment. This was five months into World War I. And you had this beautiful moment of peace. But then you had four more years of a terrible, terrible war. Is this what Jesus came to earth for? Peace on earth? 
what does peace on earth mean? You know, peace on earth is one of the most cherished sentiments of the Christmas season. It's drawn from Scripture, Luke chapter 2, where the angels reveal to the, the, themselves to the shepherds and, and declare Christ's birth. And they say that there would be peace on earth. So we take that, we put it in the songs of our season, which we will sing on Christmas Eve. Hope you're there. And in most of us, we think of peace on earth as in a very general sense, like we long and wish for world peace or peace in our, in our society or some sort of relational peace. As a matter of fact, no matter what your theological, what your tradition, your background may be, all of us kind of hope for the day that humanity will live in harmony and in peace. But Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and all we have are these fleeting glimpses of peace. So what I'd, like to take, what I'd like to do today is take another look at that passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 2, that passage where we get peace on earth. Let's re-examine it. Let's figure out what is peace on earth that is meant by these angels who reveal themselves to the shepherds. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn. Luke chapter 2. As you turn to there, Luke is after Matthew, before Mark. As you turn to Luke chapter 2, let me give you a little background. Luke is one of the gospel writers. We call them gospels because they're... What did I say? Oh, you're right, yeah. Matthew, Mark, Luke. If I've led you astray, forgive me. Let me give you a little background on Luke before we get there. Not this huge, deep dive into all of its background, but it's, it is one of the four books that talk about Jesus' life and his ministry. We call them gospels. Each gospel writer has its own distinct, their own distinct tendencies, their themes, their purpose in writing. And Luke emphasizes, above all others, the humanity of Jesus. And one way he does that is he really talks about God being in the flesh, the, the, the most extensive birth narrative, the most extensive crucifixion, really a focus that this is God in the flesh, which is what we're celebrating, right? The incarnation of Christ, God taking on flesh, walking amongst his creation, Luke provides a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, whereas the other genealogy in Scripture is Matthew, which goes back to Abraham, because Matthew's purpose is to show them that this is the fulfillment of what the Jews are waiting for, the Messiah, and that is, yes, Father Abraham, who had many sons. Let me give you a little background on where we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We're going to actually, so starting in Luke chapter 2, you have the actual birth of Jesus. You see that Mary and Joseph, they're in Bethlehem because there's a census. You know this. Most of you know this. Whether you go to church regularly or not, you know this because you've, you had to do the third grade play or whatever you did. They're in Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. They, they, Jesus is born. They wrap him and they put him in a manger. And then we pick up with this scene somewhere outside of the city where there is shepherds who are waiting. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring you great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah of the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign, you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth 
to those whom God is pleased. So verses 10 through 12, we see this birth announcement. There's a solitary single angel who makes this appearance and says that Jesus is going to be born. He gives them a location. And can I just make a real quick observation for you? I know that I read the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, and your, your Bible more than likely, unless you have what I have, says Christ the Lord. Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew, but the, the Bible is written in Greek. So the word Christos, which is actually the Greek translation of Messiah. So those two words are the same. Did you know that? Well, now you do. You're welcome, because you'll, you'll get that answer on Bible trivia correct. So what, what we have here is this announcement by this angel, and he says, I'm going to give you good news of great joy. And then he says, a Savior is born. What's the good news that will bring great joy to all people? That there is a Savior, and he is the Christ. And in that one statement, he summarizes the entire gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he's about. Now, these titles, Christ and Lord, they don't really stick. Like, they're announced at his birth. And then the church, after Jesus dies and is resurrected, the church begins to refer to him as Christ and Lord. They don't really stick during his lifetime. So I would imagine the, the readers of Luke back then and today, we get the real full understanding and appreciation of these titles that maybe the shepherds themselves did not have. Although they got a pretty cool scene with this angel, and it's about to get a little bit cooler because we see in verse 13 through 14 that all of a sudden he's joined by a chorus of angels. I kind of, in my mind, this is Jerome's mind, and that's a scary place to be. I kind of view this as like, we remember that choir concert a few weeks ago? And I think on the very last song, Mark Manley walks out and he sings by himself. And we just stand there. I kind of feel like the angels are standing there kind of in the background as this angel is, he's, 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 he's making this message to the disciples. And all of a sudden, he says, Jesus is born. He gives a location, which is kind of oddly specific. Here's the circumstances by which you're going to find Jesus. I kind of feel like that's God showing off, like calling his shot like Babe Ruth, saying, I'm going to hit the home run over that wall. Like, what other baby is going to be found in a manger, you know? So, so anyways, the angel's kind of revealing himself. And all of a sudden, the choir kicks in. And they begin to praise God. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill to me. And you know this, right? It's in our songs. I want, you sh- I want to show you some parallelism that, be- that exists in that verse. Glory to-, to God in the highest heaven, or in the highest. So it's glory to God in the highest. And what? Peace. Where? On earth. To men. Now let me ask this question. What are the angels doing here? Are they just paying tribute to God and like having good wishes for men? Is it like an athlete after a game who says, I just want to give all the glory to God that I'm so great at playing this sport and I'd like to wish peace to all my fans out there on earth? Is that, is that what they're doing? They're not just hoping and wishing for peace for us. They're actually making a, a statement that something is happening, that there is a historical event that is taking place that's changing something. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to whom God's favor rests. They're making an announcement of the birth of Christ so that this praise that they give, this proclamation of praise, is tied to that announcement. Let's look at those things. Glory to God. How is it that this brings glory to God? Now, we think oftentimes that, as Christians, how we think about how we need to bring glory to God. Like, Jesus says, if you bear fruit, then you bring glory to the Father, right? So we kind of think in those terms. But the beautiful thing about Christmas is it's not about us bringing glory to God. It's about God bringing glory 
to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. The author of Hebrews says that that he radiates God's own glory and expresses his very character, or that he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus coming to earth brings the glory of God. You remember what it was like in the Old Testament when it came to the glory of God? It works differently now that Jesus is born. If anyone wants to see the Father, Jesus says in John 14, they've seen me, they've seen the Father. There's a beauty and a magnificence that's seen in Jesus. And the idea of glory in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, is that glory is weighty, which sounds weird. Glory is heavy? What does that mean? One pastor connected this idea of the weightiness of glory as seen in Scripture with the birth of Jesus when he writes this. There is a beauty on earth now that displaces all other beauties. It lessens other beauties because of how beautiful it is. And there is a magnificence that's now visible in Christ that lessens the magnificence of all other things. There is a beauty that exists because of the coming of Christ, but sometimes we fail to recognize it or remember it. It reminds me of the old hymn that, I used, that we used to sing when I was a kid, or maybe my mom and dad sang, and I just sat in the back of the car, but you remember this? Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's a weightiness that displaces. When we see the glory of God, it, it, it trumps everything else. It's more beautiful than the things that we consider beautiful. It's more magnificent than the things that we consider magnificent. Humanity's problem, you, me, our problem is that we don't recognize that beauty and magnificence. When the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and we see it, we easily forget it and we chase those other things. May we see Jesus and may he trump everything in our life. The second part of that proclamation of praise by the angels is peace on earth, which is how we started this message. God reveals his glory through the coming of Jesus and the effect for mankind is that there is peace on earth. Now the word here for peace, the Greek word, is erene. I literally wrote the word air dash rain dash a because my Greek is terrible. But you can't see that on my notes. But it's related to the same word shalom, and many of you may not be as familiar with erene, but you know the word shalom, shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. And this is key. This is key to why we are even in this passage of scripture, why we started this message. Erene is peace, but it's more than just a general view of peace. It's more than just a wish and a hope that there would be a opposite of war, a freedom from difficult times. Erene brings with it this, this idea of harmony and tranquility, that there is a peace here that is being referred to as the fullness of the blessing that Jesus brings when he is born. He brings a new situation between God and man. Luke later recalls the peace that comes between God and man when he's at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. He's talking to them, and he says this, that it's the good news, the same good news that those angels said, we bring good news. It's the good news of Jesus. It's that there is now peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the peace that the angels are talking about is more than a ceasefire. It's more than world peace. It's, between, it's a peace between man and God. It's made possible because God's will. 
his goodwill towards men. If you are going to tweet anything, tweet this. Peace on earth is this. That God took the initiative of making peace with us through sending his son. And some of you who are veterans of church are saying, Jerome, teach me something I don't know. But here's the thing. We know this, but we don't necessarily always kind of live in it and remember it. You know what peace on earth is? It's that God took the initiative to create peace between he and I, between you and him. See, lack of peace is not a vertical problem. We often think of peace being a vertical problem, like, or it's not, it's not a horizontal problem. It's not between relationships. It's not between you and me. It's not, we often think peace is about getting along with others. If we could just get over our selfishness, then people would, we would have peace. That's pretty easy, right? Getting over our selfishness. The Bible tells a different story that the lack of peace is not because there's a problem horizontally, but there's a problem vertically. See, our lack of peace is primarily because of our lack of peace with God, that between God and humanity, that, that, that's the real issue. By birth and by choice, all of us are sinners. We're alienated from one another, and we're alienated from God. Our relationship with God is desperately in need of being mended before other relationships can really be put right. And guess how that's mended? Not in our own efforts, but what God has done. He's the only one who could fix that. Only God can make peace with us. Every other religion in the world, we have to appease and make peace with God, right? It's our effort. It's our hitting the check marks. Not this thing. He's the one who did it. We should be saying amen and dancing in the aisles. Think about that. Every other religion in the world, you have to make yourself right. You have to become worthy enough. This thing says, don't even try to be worthy enough. I mean, you'll never be it. Once again, God calls his shot. Sorry for the baseball references. That's just what you get when you voted me in as your pastor. <laughs> Centuries before Jesus' birth, and we, it was read just a minute ago, the prophet Isaiah says, for, un, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. See, at the birth of Jesus, the angels were not just giving well wishes to humanity. They were announcing this event that God is glorified in the coming of Christ and there is peace made available to mankind. God entered into the world in the form of a human being so that he may reconcile sinful humanity to himself. Decades later, Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, since we have been made right with God, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. Because of what Christ has done, the peace that Jesus offers is, is different than the attempts that we have to making our own peace. Because it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our circumstances or our human relationships. It depends on what he has done. That's why those who have found their peace in Jesus can experience peace despite difficult circumstances. Remember the song we sang as children if you grew up in church? 
I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. Yeah, I love you. Thank you so much. You've just validated this whole message. Don't even bother saying, Jeremy, you did a good job today, because I feel like I did a good job, because you said where, and uh, even if I didn't do a good job, don't tell me that, because you said where, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the one check mark I had. All right, do you remember that song, Peace That Passes Understanding? It's because we have been made right with him, but who made us right? He did. (laughs) Can I just tell you that Jesus actually, the one who brings peace, promised turmoil and trouble. And even the turmoil and trouble that his followers will have pales into comparison to the peace that he brings. Peace on earth is this, that God took the initiative of making peace with us through sending his son. Now what does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for the next few days as we approach Christmas? What does it mean for how we live our life? Like, I know you're saying, Jerome, this is not a truth that's new to me. And I said, okay, I'll give you that. But how does it really affect our life? This is what we're looking at right now. And I want to go all the way back to verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. That night there were, what? Shepherds standing in the fields nearby. The very fact that this announcement of God's plan, of the good news, of God making reconciliation between man and, and, and himself was given to shepherds is good news. No matter who you are in this room, it is good news. Shepherds are not worthy of such a message. Shepherds in that time, in that place, were the lowest of the low. Let me ask this question. Does anyone here know shepherds? Yeah, Costas is a shepherd. Costas, you're not the lowest of the low, man. You're the, like, the best of the best. I'm just saying, in that time and place, shepherds were looked down upon. You know that a shepherd's witness in a court of law didn't even count. Shepherds were considered liars and thieves. They were rejected as unclean according to Jewish law. They were viewed as being outside the covenant promises of God. They could not come into the temple because of the nature of their work, and therefore they could not live according to the cleanliness laws of the Jewish people. Shepherds were the lowest of the low, and why is such an important message? The one where the word Christ is given as a title, Savior is given as a title, things that the people who actually met Jesus and walked in the Jesus time when his ministry did not even recognize those titles. It wasn't until after a resurrection that we recognized this is Christ. I mean, like, Peter confesses faith, but there's a whole lot of... They got the answer up front at the birth of Jesus. Shepherds. God chose shepherds to announce the good news, not the morally upright or the religiously elite, but the morally broken and the hopeless. This promise of peace with God was made to those who were broken, hopeless, and helpless. And that is good news for you and me. As a matter of fact, this pattern of going to the shepherds sets up, it kind of foreshadows and kind of sets up Jesus' ministry. Do you know the most common accusation against Jesus that was used to discredit him? He's a friend of sinners. Who said that? Gold star for you, Jack. That Jesus is a friend of sinners. So today, let me just say, this is good news. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. Can I tell you how this is a good news? Because no matter how broken you may be or feel, peace is available to you. It means that if you've ever thought that you're not good enough, that God is out to get you, 
that God favors those who seem to have it all together. That he really has just taken the initiative to make peace with you. And that's what the coming of Jesus is about. And if you accept the gift and the offer of peace that is accomplished through his son Jesus Christ, dying in our place, being raised to new life that we may have new life, then I believe that you'll experience peace like you've never known. This coming of Christ is about God's friendship towards you. It's not him coming with commandments number 11 through 20. That's not what happened in this story. He is a baby laying in a manger. No matter your background in faith, your experience in church, you probably know John 3.16. It shows up during field goals at NFL games. Or it did in the 90s. I don't know that I see it as much anymore. But do you know John 17, the very next verse, John 3, 17? God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is the friend of sinners, and he's your friend if you haven't put your trust in him. If you're just checking things out, if you feel unworthy, he went to shepherds. Remember that. Peace on earth is this, that God took the initiative of making peace with us through sending his son. It's good news for Christians too. Because aren't we just shepherds too? We tend to forget about it. We forget how we became Christians in the first place. Did we not recognize our brokenness, our unworthiness, our need for a rescuer? Didn't we call out to that rescuer? Because we recognized our need to be rescued. You don't call out for a rescuer unless you need one. That's how we began this thing. So if that's you today, the fact that he went to shepherds, if you were a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, if you're surrendered to him, let me give you a couple things. First of all, rejoice in the grace that you've received this Christmas. We are notorious for getting, for forgetting the grace that we've received. I, I, I like to use the term grace amnesiacs. As a matter of fact, the longer we're in this thing, we begin to isolate ourselves from those people who are not like us, right? Afraid that maybe they'll rub off on us. Maybe we'll, our faith will falter. We become afraid that maybe we, we would catch their sins. And so we build this bubble in this life to protect ourselves. And we begin to think that we could sustain this Christian life that God started us, started us on because he rescued us. We were never worthy, and we still continue to not be worthy. We build the bubble, but guess what? You can build a bubble around your house, but there's going to be sin in your household because you are there. Because while you may have the hope of Jesus Christ, and while you put your trust in him, you're still a sinner. Ask the person sitting next to you, Am I a sinner? Oh, my wife's shaking her head. Don't shake your head that much. <laughs> yeah, we have been forgiven. We have been freely forgiven and forever forgiven. But yet we battle with our flesh. And if you're here today and you don't believe that, then you're blind or lost or a fool. Merry Christmas. The moment that you believe that you no longer are in need of grace, you reject the good news that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds that day. Second thing is this. Be a friend of sinners. 
I kind of hinted at it on the last point. More importantly, let Jesus be a friend of sinners through your life. Whether we like it or not, we as Christians, you're going to hate me for this one. Whether we like it or not, we somehow in our Christian DNA, we become more like the Pharisees than, than Jesus. Maybe we are afraid of our faith faltering or compromising our convictions if we forge real relationships. But here's the thing. Jesus was serious about sin. He was serious about repentance. He was serious about salvation. He was serious about holiness. But yet he was a friend of sinners. What does it mean to be a friend of sinners? It means we don't build giant walls with drawbridges to our life. It means we don't consider ourselves better than anyone else. It means we are rescued and we are redeemed and we are agents of that reconciliation, that our doors and our lives are open. It means that the self-righteous that who, who will judge you because of the rooms you walk into and the relationships that you keep really are just proof that you're being transformed in the image of Christ. May the Holy Spirit work in each one of us and give us a deep love and affection for those who are not Christians, who don't know this peace that we know. May we feel the burden and the weight to cry out for them. And I want to remind you that you're not the Holy Spirit. You cannot save anyone. But you can pray that the Spirit will draw those he's put in your, in your life, in your circle, those who you befriend. You can answer questions to the best of your ability, and then you can go find the answers to the questions you don't have. You can invite them into your home. You can engage in meaningful relationships. The band's going to come at this time, and we're going to sing, we're going to close with a song. The Christmas season, the whole Advent series, the whole approach to the pulpit over the last four weeks is, is different for me. Because the truth of the matter is, it's hard for a pastor to come up here every December and say, I've uncovered this great nugget of truth that you've never heard about. I don't feel the need to do that because the truth of the matter is when I look at my own life I could confess that sometimes I'm educated above my level of obedience it's the most basic thing you've been singing the truth of this message in Christmas carols your entire life whether you are a Christian or not May we experience Christmas. May we experience the next few days in a way that's greater than we did in the past. I want to say one thing because I understand that some of you here today look at Christmas and it's also a difficult season. As joyous as it is, there's difficulty. It's a mixed bag. Perhaps this is the first Christmas that you're celebrating without a loved one. Perhaps this Christmas will be more lonely than previous Christmases because your children are with their other family. Perhaps you've lost a spouse through death or divorce. There's all kinds of things that make the season difficult. And I don't want to take anything away from that, but my prayer for you in the midst of those difficulties of the season is that over these next few days, that you would think about and consider God's unbelievable grace for you. 
his goodness towards you and the ways he has blessed you. There's peace on earth to those whom his favor rests. May you become more and more in tune with the generosity of God in your life, that you may grow in thanksgiving. It is my belief and my prayer that as we do those things, that we will indeed have a very Merry Christmas. And now may you go to the airport, to your in-law's house, one more trip to Walmart, whatever. May you go in the peace that only God brings. The one who took the initiative to make peace between he and us.